Um, today our text is going to be Psalm 150. And as I understand, Pastor Chris and Zach uh, spent a lot of time in the Psalms in 2021. And what better than to close it out with the last Psalm, right? Psalm 150. And it's important for us to reflect on how God opened the Psalter to us. Psalm 1 tells us how to live a life in accord with God's design. We are like a tree that's planted by streams of water. And in order for a tree to grow into a healthy, vibrant tree, what is needed? Well, of course, nourishment is needed. Hence the streams of water that the text in Psalm 1 clearly gives us, right? In a similar way, we can only flourish in life if we do it God's way. And the water that nourishes us is the law of God. And that could very easily mean the Mosaic Law, the first five books of the Bible, but it could also mean the entirety of the Old Testament. So Psalm 1 teaches us that the only way to flourish in life as a human being is to do it God's way, to center your life upon the very word of God. The rest of the Psalter takes us on this journey that really captures the full range of emotion that we experience in the Christian life. You know, there are some psalms that express joy and gladness. There are some psalms where the psalmist confesses his sin and he seeks genuine repentance of his sin. There are some that address the topic of hope, particularly the hope in the coming Davidic king who will reign eternally. There are some that are prayers of lament. In fact, a third of the Psalter are these prayers of lament. It's really a gift that we must rediscover as the modern church. These are prayers of just raw, honest pain that simultaneously places our trust and our faith in the promises of God. So even in this short list, we see that the Psalter captures the full range of emotion that we experience on this side of glory. So if the Psalter begins describing the only way that we can flourish in life is to live according to God's design, how does the Psalter end? Where is the story going? What is the ultimate aim or goal of the Christian life? Well, today our psalm will answer that question. Our ultimate aim or goal of the Christian life is worship. Pastor John Piper once stated, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. Amen. So let us keep that in mind as we read this psalm together. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. It is perfect and it's relevant throughout every age. Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. 
Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Most Holy Father, you are good and you are holy. There is none other than you. I pray that you would use this text, your word, living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. Pray that you would use it to glorify, praise and lift your name on high, to convict and encourage your people's hearts. That you would use me as your under-shepherd to deliver your word faithfully so that we all might change and be transformed as a result of it. Lord, we love you, and we do praise you. Help us to understand this text. Not that it would just remain in our minds, but that it would truly be lived out and affect our hearts and our hands and what we do in this community and around the world. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Now, I think it's very easy to say certain words uh, without giving them much thought. And I think praise is one of these words, especially in the Christian life. In fact, we just heard the word mentioned 13 times in the psalm we just read. 12 of those times where it was commanded, it was an imperative to praise the Lord. But how much time do we actually give thought to what it actually means to praise God? In our culture, we often hear the phrase used more flippantly. When someone says, praise the Lord, sometimes it's merely just another way of saying, finally. You know, praise the Lord, my Amazon package has arrived, right? Others of us may have negative feelings towards the idea of praise. We may think of some clear abuses, say, in a hyper-charismatic setting. Or we may think of modern church music that is often labeled as praise in worship, some of which reflects very little of the gospel. Not all of it, but some of it. In fact, the modern church possibly has such a poor understanding of praise that we do boil it sometimes down just to the concept of singing. But the Bible has a much bigger view of the concept of praise. The term halah in the Hebrew is rooted in the idea of shining the spotlight onto something. You shine the spotlight onto something because it's what you want to draw everyone's attention to. It, it's, it's what you boast in. It's where your pride and your joy lies. And that is where this psalm directs our attention towards. It shines the spotlight on God and what he deserves. It shows us that we must praise God literally with all that we got. Not just with our religious life not just with our minds, not just in our jobs, but all of us and all of who we are, we ought to praise God. And that's reflective as we summarize the psalm in this way. Since God is abundantly worthy of our worship, we must abundantly, or we must praise him with an abundance of ourselves. 
But this is a lot easier said than done, isn't it? Um, It would not be too effective to say, yeah, we need to praise God more often, therefore go out and just do that. No, that's a sermon that we might find in a synagogue. A Christless sermon. So our goal for today will be to dig deeper, more than just do this more often, but our goal will be to discover the reality that we are created for something much bigger than ourselves. We are created to praise and to worship the one true living God. So to accomplish this, we're going to ask three questions. First, where must we praise God? Second, why must we praise God? And third, how must we praise God? So let's begin with the first question. Where must we praise God? Well, we see in verse 1, That God is to be praised not only in the sanctuary of the temple on earth, but he is also to be praised in his mighty heavens. Now, some believe these two lines are addressing the same thing. So, praise God in his sanctuary. In other words, praise him in his mighty heavens. So, in this view, God's sanctuary, his holy place, is another way of saying heaven. This is where God resides, and this is from where he reigns. Now, is this true? Well, absolutely. Is that interpretation fine and good? I think so. It's how I viewed it when I first began to study this text. But I think as we look beyond Psalm 150 to the preceding Psalms, we notice that this is the last of five psalms that close out the Psalter, and it's one big doxology, one big praise that ends the Psalter. In fact, within the five books of the Psalms, each ends in a doxology, but the fifth book of the Psalms ends in five doxologies. So notice the progression of who is the one praising God in these last psalms. Psalm 146 is an individual praising God. Psalm 147 is the inhabitants of Jerusalem praising God. Psalm 148 is the inhabitants of heaven praising God. And then Psalm 149 is the saints, all the believers who are praising God. So so wouldn't it be strange for Psalm 150 to return to the inhabitants of heaven again? Because we see this climax that's been building for quite some time now, if we read the last part of the Psalter. And the closing words do not limit anything or anyone from ascribing God the glory that is due to his name. That's what verse 6 says, doesn't it? Let all that has breath. Praise the Lord. So it seems that verse 1 is not addressing two lines. It's not, it's not saying that it's saying two different lines addressing the same thing. Rather, it is saying something like this. You know, all that is on earth, things like the temple's sanctuary, and all that is in heaven must praise God. This concept is reflected in the Christ hymn of Philippians Chapter 2, verse 10, in a beautiful description of Jesus' humiliation and exaltation, the Apostle Paul says that this occurred so that, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. So from the get-go, this psalm emphasizes the expansive, universal worship of God. This is where the story is going. One day, everyone will confess the lordship of Jesus Christ, whether that be willing or not, because that is how abundantly worthy God is to be worshipped. So that is where, where we must praise God, but the text goes on. What about our second question? Why must we praise God? Well, we see two things as an answer to this question. We must praise God because of what he has done and who he is. Because of what he has done and who he is. We see these in verse 2. First, we must praise him because of what he has done. The first half of verse 2 states, praise God for his mighty deeds. Now, this refers to the things God does. It refers to his actions. And if we want to be even more specific, uh, guvura, the Hebrew word for his mighty deeds, refers to God's redemptive acts in history. His redemptive acts in history. Now, there are many cases of this throughout the Old Testament, but primarily our minds probably go to the Exodus event. It was a time when the Israelites were living in Egypt for 430 years. And it was, it was a pleasant time for them. It was um, wonderful in many ways because of Joseph's reputation with the Pharaoh. It was a long refuge for them as the promised land was plagued with drought and famine. And Exodus 1 tells us that they were fruitful, increased greatly, they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. That's very reflective of mankind's original calling in Genesis 1.28, isn't it? Like Psalm 1, they were flourishing within God's design for life. But we know that that soon took a turn for the worse because a new Pharaoh rose who did not no, Joseph, he felt threatened by the numbers and strength of the Israelites, so he decided to severely oppress them through slave labor. The text says that it made their lives bitter with hard service, so the Pharaoh was just ruthless in executing his plan. Yet, this event symbolized something much bigger than slavery in a foreign land under a pagan god-man. Throughout the scriptures, the Exodus story is referred to over and over as ultimately representing our bondage to our sin. By birth, we are enslaved to our sin. We are not simply people who sin, but we are sinners by nature. And just like the new Pharaoh who arose, sin is an unjust slave master. However, as we may know, there's hope in this story. Israel does not endure this unjust treatment for long because God raises up a deliverer named Moses to deliver the people from their oppression. And with reference to our sin, God raised up a better mediator to deliver us from our sin, didn't he? So when we read or sing about God's mighty deeds in verse 2 of our text, we are immediately reminded of the greatest redemptive act ever performed in the history of the world. Such an act was manifested in the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Because even though Jesus did not sin, he knew that we were hopeless, and he knew that we were stuck in the rut of our sin unless God raised up a deliverer. And Jesus is that deliverer who upon the cross, he died the death that we deserved. He bore the wrath of God in full for his people. He bore that penalty and punishment that was due to us. Because, again, we are not just people who sin and commit sins, but we are sinners by nature. And as a response to that mighty deed, what shall we do? Well, flooded throughout Psalm 150, the answer seems pretty clear. Our response must be simply to praise the Lord. Not only because of what he has done, but secondly, because of who he is. The second half of verse 2 says, Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Now the term here refers to an abundance of something. A multitude, too many to number. So this is talking about God's very character. So, so God is not just good. God is abundantly good. God is not just loving. God is abundantly loving. He's not just compassionate, but he has an abundance of compassion. And the list obviously goes on and on and on. And if we're familiar with our shorter catechism, question and answer number four gives us a glimpse of who God is. This is not an expansive list at all. It says that God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And as a response to these attributes, what else can we do except to praise his holy name, to shine the spotlight on him, giving him all the attention and all the glory that is due to his name. Friends, this is why God is worthy of praise, simply because of who he is. But we do this not only with our lips, but also with how we live our lives. And that point becomes very clear the more we look at verses 3 through 5. So let's ask our third question. How must we praise God? You know, when we look at verses 3 through 5, and we skim them on the surface, we could just give a very simple answer to that question. Well, I guess we have to praise God with a bunch of instruments and dance, right? <laughs> is that what the text is saying? Well, that would be accurate. There are seven instruments listed from across every musical and instrumental classification, but the text is getting at something more than musical instruments. And to discover what that is, we will look at one of the uses of musical instruments in the Old Testament. It may seem like an obscure text, but I hope it makes sense once we get to the end of looking at this. Well, we find it in 2 Chronicles 29, verses 20 through 30. And in this text is when King Hezekiah, a good king of the south, uh, rose early to gather the city officials to uh, prepare and restore temple worship. They bring the bulls, rams, lambs, goats, all of that to be slaughtered as the sin offering. Their blood was thrown against the altar. And then in verse 25 and following, the text says this, And he, that's King Hezekiah, stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres, 
according to the commandment of David and of Gad, the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet. For the commandment was from the Lord through his prophets. The Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. Then Hezekiah commanded that the burnt offering be offered on the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song to the Lord began also. And the trumpets accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel, the whole assembly worshipped. And the singers sang and the trumpeters sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. So do we notice when the praise music occurred? It, it began when the burnt offering began, and it ended when the burnt offering ended. Now some use this text, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, but they use it to advocate for no musical instruments in New Testament public worship. I'm sure that may make some of us cringe our eyebrows a bit. No musical instruments in public worship. What? But their argument is along the lines that musical instruments were only used during the sacrifice. And now that Christ has come as the once-for-all sacrifice, fulfilling the ceremonial law, the burnt offering, along with the musical accompaniment, ought to be no more. Now that may sound like a fine argument until we realize two things. First, musical instruments are present to accompany our praise and worship in the book of Revelation. In chapter 5, 8, and 9, there are harps and trumpets present. So the worship that will, uh, the worship that will occur eternally will have musical accompaniment. And secondly, it becomes very obvious that texts like Psalm 150 are not restrictive at all in nature, are they? So God is to be praised everywhere, whether it is in heaven or on earth, and God is to be praised with everything. The list of musical instruments we see in verses 3 through 5 is not exhaustive at all. The gist of what the psalmist is saying is this, whatever you got, praise the Lord with it, right? Whatever you got, no restrictions. Yet this does not mean that the musical accompaniment during the sacrifice, as we looked in 2 Chronicles, means nothing to us in the modern church, does it? Do we remember what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2? I'll read it for us. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Friends, this is what it means to praise God, not only with our lips, but literally with everything that we got. In other scripture, we are told that the presence of God, it no longer resides in the earthly temple. That, that was the significance of the temple curtain being torn into two as our Lord Jesus breathed his last. Instead, the holy presence of God resides within us. Our bodies are temples devoted to God, especially as we model the selfless sacrifice of our Lord Jesus as living sacrifices. 
So how do we worship God? We worship God in everything that we do and with everything that we got. In 1 Corinthians 10, after discussing what a believer must do when offered uh, food sacrificed to idols, Paul says something that is most likely very familiar to us. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So what we do in this hour is not the only time that we properly worship God, but our praise and our worship of God is an all-of-life activity. The Christian life is not some side project that you do on the weekends. A genuine believer does not set apart certain parts of their life to God and not to others. A genuine believer is one whose entire life is devoted to the praise of God. So praising God is not just confessing with our lips the truth of who God is or what he has done, as we saw in verse 2. But praising God occupies all of who we are and all that we do, as we see in verses 3 through 5. Because God is abundantly worthy of our worship. We must praise him with an abundance of ourselves. That is what the instruments in verses 3 through 5 ultimately direct us towards. Friends, I encourage us to think about the whole of our lives, especially whenever you as a church at Living Hope come to uh, the Lord's table. Are there certain areas of our lives where we're comfortable in offering it to the Lord but not others? Are there certain sins we simply love too much to give up? We may even think, you know, I love God, I desire to live a life that honors Him, but there's one thing I really struggle with, I can't seem to kick it to the curb, so I guess I'm going to let it go unchecked. God is gracious, He'll forgive me continually, I'll just make sure I praise God in the other areas of my life. Friends, those are not the thoughts of someone who truly loves God. Seek to mortify those thoughts and live according to God's design for life because this psalm teaches us very clearly that we must praise God with everything that we got. If you got a gift of music, use it to praise the Lord. But there's hope in this text if we don't have any musical talent. Because if you got a gift of teaching, praise the Lord with that. If you got a gift of service, praise the Lord with that. If you got a gift of giving, praise the Lord with that. The list could go on and on. Whatever gift you have, use it for the benefit and the advancement of God's kingdom in Terre Haute and beyond. Because this psalm, again, is everything but restrictive in living and lifting our praises to our God. In fact, it's completely freeing. Unlike our sin, our Lord Jesus Christ is a just master who always has our best interest in mind, doesn't he? He frees us from our sins so that we are able to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So let's be a people who are passionate about mortifying the remaining flesh the remaining sin, the old man in our life. Why? So that we can literally praise God with all that we got. You know, this is a wonderful psalm to study as we just wrapped up 
2021. And I pray as we sing and meditate on this psalm in the coming days that we would look back and praise God for the countless times that he has been faithful to us. Not just through the good times in life, it's through the trials, the difficulties, and the hardships. Most importantly, we praise God for sending his one and only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because coming from heaven to earth, Jesus took on human flesh. He lived the perfect life, fulfilling the law of God. He died the death that the most wretched sinner deserved. Yet death could not hold him down because on the third day he rose from the dead. He was seen by over 500 people in a 40-day period. And then as the final sacrifice for sin, he ascended into heaven as a pleasing sacrifice. The once-for-all sacrifice for our sin. It was that pleasing aroma that was seen even in the Old Testament with the burnt offering. He alone is worthy of our worship and our praise. No other sacrifice is needed to atone for our sins other than our duty, right? To offer our bodies as a living sacrifice before God. So let's direct our attention towards him in all things. In living hope, let's, whether we eat, we drink, whatever we do, this Lord's day and beyond, let us do it for the praise and the worship of our God. Let's pray. Father, you are most holy. And you are good. Thank you for your love and your grace towards us in Christ. We thank you that our aim and our goal in life is to worship and to praise the one true living God. We pray that we would really just evaluate our lives as a result of this text. Reveal to us, Lord, any area of weakness, any blind spots, any areas of our lives that we may not devote to you, that we maybe go ignored. Just pray, Father, that you would be kind to us, reveal our sin to us, so that we can literally praise you with all that we have and all that we are. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior, for you are good and you are holy. There is none other than you. Jesus, we lift your name on high. Amen. This sermon was recorded at Living Hope Church in Terre Haute, Indiana. For more sermons and resources, visit livinghopeth.com.